Paleo Runner podcast is devoted to finding better ways to live, run, train, and eat. I'm your host, Aaron Olson. You can find more information by going to paleorunner.org. If you enjoy the show, please go to iTunes and leave a review. Search for Paleo Runner in iTunes and click ratings and reviews. You can also follow me on facebook.com slash runpaleo or on Twitter at runpaleo. I wanted to take a minute to let you know about a product I've been using called 3Fuel. 3Fuel is a sports drink that gives you fat, protein, and carbohydrates to use as a fuel source. Unlike sugary sports drinks, 3Fuel gets absorbed slowly into your bloodstream to give you sustained energy throughout your workout. If you'd like to give it a try, you can get 10% off by using the coupon code 3FOLSON. Go to paleorunner.org and click 3Fuel at the top of the page. If you're listening through the podcast app on iPhone, click the link displayed on the app right now. My guest today is Dr. Phil Maffetone. Phil is author of The Big Book of Endurance Training and Racing and has coached triathlon grades such as Mark Allen, who is a six-time Ironman world champion. Phil, thanks so much for being part of the show. Aaron, thank you. It's great to be here. Well, Phil, you know, you have a really interesting background in music, in nutrition, in chiropractic, and in endurance training. Can you give our listeners a little bit of a background of how you first got started in running? Well, I, I began running in high school um, in the 60s and um, uh, did it because I suddenly realized that I was the fastest kid in, in gym class. And uh, and that kind of launched me into trying out all different sports, which I, I seem to excel in quite well. Um, except for basketball, even though I'm I'm six feet. Um, at, at the time, I was you know one of the tallest guys in the school, but I was I just didn't like basketball. But I I ended up uh, running barefoot some of the time because it felt better and I was faster. And um, and I ran in college as well. And and um, when I realized I wanted to get into school and become a doctor and help people. Um, it was with uh, sports medicine in mind. And of course, that led me to um, look at nutrition and and the dietary intakes of athletes. And um, and then when I got into um, private practice, that's how I, that's how I went about uh, uh, working with athletes. And then I, you know, I, early on in practice, basically right away, I realized that um, um, people were coming in with injuries and I would help them with their injuries and that seemed fairly easy to, to do but then they'd go out and train and come back either with the same injury or, or have a new one and I realized that I needed to participate in their training as well and otherwise uh, you know I was just treating symptoms and um, I didn't want to do that so I, I out of necessity became a coach. Okay so you said that you started out as a sprinter and you also did some barefoot running was that unique at the time to be a sprinter running barefoot? I think it was. You know, I didn't, I didn't, um, it just seemed like a natural thing to do. And I don't recall anyone else doing it, but I also don't recall whether um, uh, there were any issues about it. Uh, I remember at a track meet somewhere, um, I was at the starting line. Um, I, I did run in spikes at times, um, but I, in this one particular race, I was at the starting line, and the, the official said, you, you have to wear shoes. Mm-hmm. And I said, why? And he said, you have to wear shoes or, or you, can't, you can't race. So I had to put on shoes. But other than that, I, you know, I just, uh, I don't know, I just seemed to um, naturally drift toward, toward being barefoot. And, and, of course, growing up, um, I lived in the country for much of my childhood and, and growing up, 
being barefoot was sort of normal, and uh, I remember many times going out on my bike for a ride not having shoes on as well. Mm-hmm. And in the introduction to your book, you tell a story about how one day, you, it sounds like you've always had a, a interest in exercise and a natural way of doing things, but you just decided, you know what, I want to become a physician of chiropractic, and that's what I'm going to do. And and you had it sounds like you had a good job at the time, but within about two weeks, you actually decided to go to chiropractic school in Chicago and totally make this whole lifestyle change. How did that? How did that come about? You you said you said that you had an epiphany. What happened in that situation? Yeah, you know, I I had I had uh, I had gone to college for only one reason, and that was to. Uh, run track, and I had some goals I wanted to reach, and um, you know, making to making it to a national class level, and um, and when I attained that goal, uh, I I quit quit college. I literally quit the next day, actually, um, and uh, I I uh, I found a job with a phone company, and it was uh, a good paying job, and all that kind of stuff, and. Um, got married, started a family. I mean, my, my life was underway and I didn't, I didn't see that I was going to do anything else. And I was quite happy with what I was doing. But one day I came home from, from work and I sort of had a, a, it was just a strange reaction. It was sort of like, um, everything turned white and, and I had this momentary, glimpse of doing something else in my life um and as i found out later i was actually sitting on the lawn in front of my apartment for 45 minutes seemed like just 45 seconds and when i came out of it i i realized i had to go back to school and and uh become a doctor of some type and and help people and um i gave my two week notice the next day it was such a powerful experience and uh so two weeks later i i left my job and went back to school. Mm-hmm. And then after you had gone to chiropractic school for a few years, you started to realize that it, uh, you said that it was sort of a limited practice and you wanted to take a more holistic approach. So you just started treating people in your apartment as, as they would run by. You you saw one guy and he looked like he was struggling and you asked if you could treat him. Um, so what what is what was it about chiropractic that was limited and, and how is your approach different? Well, I think it was it was actually after only a couple of weeks of being in school. I had moved my family from New York to Chicago and was very excited to start um, this curriculum at the chiropractic college there. Um, but after two weeks, I realized that, you know, this this was very limited, and I actually called my old boss back to see if I could get my job back again, and uh, he said, sure. Um, but the, the curriculum was limited. The, the chiropractic um, teachings were um, too limited to treating the spine as uh, the cause of all disease and, and injuries, and that just didn't that just didn't make sense to me. I knew there was more. There was nutrition. There was exercise. There were um, mental emotional things. There were um, you know the brain the brain controls everything. It's not the spine. So I I, I had a problem with that, and then I I happened to. Uh, run into um, a kinesiology class that was uh, going on and realized that 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 was something I needed to learn and much of that I needed to learn away from the college. Um, Postdoctoral courses were were plentiful around the country and I I found myself uh, 
sometimes twice a month or more um, flying to some seminar to learn um, osteopathic technique and nutrition and exercise physiology and things that I wasn't going to learn too much about at the at the college. So um, that got me into this holistic uh, scenario that uh, I maintained and still today maintain and still today learn, you know, learn more and more about. Mm-hmm. So at what point as you were learning more and more, did you start working with athletes? And at what point did you meet Mark Allen? Well, I started, um, I started working with athletes in, when I was a student. Um, and then it just continued into my practice. Um, and I got into practice in 1977 and started working with uh, you know, I was in a small town in in uh, in New York, in in the New York City suburbs, and I started working with a lot of the local runners, and that that soon, uh, um, as I got more and more referrals, uh, got me to seeing runners from New York City, and working with New York City, uh, the New York City Marathon uh, people, and you know, gradually started seeing um, other runners, and then I started doing workshops around the country, and um, I did a workshop in San Diego in 1983, and at that workshop were some of the uh, great triathletes to be, uh, Colleen Cannon, Paula newby Frazier, uh, Mark Allen, uh, and, and some others. And um, and as I started working with these people with the intent of, you know, teaching them about diet and nutrition and training and um, that kind of stuff, um, I never never intended on becoming a coach, but the the athletes were interested in continuing on an ongoing relationship and coaching was a big part of that. So it just it just sort of uh, it kind of led me in that direction. In the case of Mark, I think the, the what got his attention was that he was um, he had a calf injury and I was able to correct it that weekend and he was able to go out and race actually won a, a race that he wasn't going to even be able to participate in. And that got his attention, and he realized that, you know, this was a way for him to um, get into better shape and stay healthy and injury-free and make progress in what then was this new sport of, of triathlon. Mm-hmm. You know, something I, I found interesting in, in the beginning chapters of your book was how you talk about the difference between fitness versus being healthy. And you mentioned how you started working with uh, New York City marathoners. And, and after you ran your first marathon, you looked around and you saw all these people at the finish line laying on cots and being taken away in ambulances and you said, is this really what health is all about? Talk about what the difference between fitness and being healthy is. Yeah, that was a, that was a, a, another epiphany that I, that I uh, encountered and learned from. Um, uh, you know, there, there's this issue about um, being healthy and, and health is, is a, a state where all the, the different systems of the body are working together. There's sort of a, a, a harmony, a balance throughout the body and the muscle system, the nervous system, the digestive system, and the hormonal system, and so on and so forth. All these systems have to work together, and when they're in in this perfect harmony, we have optimal health. We may not really ever achieve perfect health, but we can keep working toward it. It's something I I still do today. Um, But that's different than fitness. Fitness is the ability to be athletic, and it's relative to um, whatever it is you want to do. If you're a 10K runner and you want to um, be more fit, you're going to be faster. And if you could run a 10K in 40 minutes, you're more fit than, than when you were able to run a 10K in 50 minutes. 
so the two 20 marathoners is more fit than the, the, the three-hour marathon. But they're different. And the problem that I was seeing was that many athletes were striving to be more fit but neglecting their health. And, and we ended up with, um, throughout the world, a lot of athletes who are fit but unhealthy. And the easiest way to see that is that um, there are so many athletes who could run well, uh, either either distance or, or short-term speed, uh, or both, and yet they're injured. They're sick frequently, um, and and that's a that's a classic example of a, an athlete who's fit but unhealthy. And and without health, we really can never achieve our our um, our optimal performance capabilities. Mm-hmm. You mentioned in the book something called the the Maffetone method, and to me, it sounded like a way of training that uh, allows your body to burn more fat and to function at a higher aerobic level at the same. Heart rate. Can you talk a little bit about what that method is and maybe how you incorporated that with some of your athletes? Yeah, it's something I learned early on. Um, the Maffetone method is um, was the name of a of a book that McGraw Hill published. Um, I can't even remember the year, but it was more than ten years ago. And um, it's it's an old book. I, I really don't recommend it. It's still out there. Uh, I recommend the big book of uh, endurance training and racing because it's it's fairly new and it has um, oh, literally ten times the amount of information in it. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, the Maffetone method has kind of stuck as a um, a phrase as as a name for for what I do. But you know, with endurance sports. And and actually, all sports that have a, a fair component of endurance in them, which includes most sports, from basketball to motorsports, and uh, even baseball and hockey. Um, and I work with all those athletes. Um, endurance, uh, the key, the key to being a better endurance athlete is to be able to burn more body fat as a source of energy. We burn both fat and sugar all the time. Right now, you and I are talking, and we're burning a certain amount of fat and a certain amount of sugar. And the key with endurance sports is to get the body burning more fat and and have less reliance on sugar. And by doing so, you'll be able to run faster and farther. And if we use a heart rate as a guide, which I started doing um, uh, as soon as I got into practice, actually, um, we can show that um, an athlete can actually run faster at the same heart rate as the months go by if if the body is healthy. When the mm. body's not healthy, that that may not happen. Okay. And you also talk about how the food you eat can affect quite a bit what fuel you're using during your run. So if you're eating, say, a, a high carbohydrate uh, diet all throughout the day, you're probably going to burn mostly sugars during your run. Whereas if you include a little bit more fats, you'll you'll be burning more fats. Is that correct? Well. That's generally correct. The bottom line is that refined carbohydrates will impair fat burning. It'll impair fat burning during your run. It'll impair fat burning throughout the day when you're when you're working. It'll impair fat burning when you're sleeping. And and the process of fat burning should be going on all the time. Um, and it's so it's such a powerful um, factor the refined carbohydrates that even just one meal of refined carbohydrates can um, literally turn off significantly turn off the fat burning mechanism. As an example. Um, for a while, I was able to, you know, it's not difficult to measure fat burning and sugar burning. All you got to do is um, find a, a, a lab where they can measure 
your oxygen uptake and your carbon dioxide output. They put you on a treadmill. They put this tube in your mouth and you run and they they analyze your your gases and um, from that you get a um, uh, uh, there's there's something called respiratory quotient and that tells you how much um, fat and how much sugar you're burning percentage wise. Mm-hmm. And when we would test somebody, um, it was so ob- obvious. It was it was really night and day uh, the difference between um, an athlete who had carbohydrates for breakfast before the test and those who did not. Those who had carbohydrates for breakfast, even as part of a healthy meal. So if you had um, you know eggs and vegetables and a couple of pieces of um, refined carbohydrate toast, um, that enough for most people to impair fat burning significantly to be noticeable during the test versus a person who would have the same meal without the toast. And um, it it was so dramatic that um, it it changed my general recommendation, which before that was, um, sure, you can get get away with having a little bit of refined carbohydrate um, if you tolerate it and um, and small, you know, small amounts in moderation, it should be okay. And I realized that, boy, it only took one meal, it only took one snack, it only took one power bar, um, you know, that you eat in the morning before your run or before your race um, to impair fat burning, impair endurance and in, impair speed in, in the case of, of racing. Really? So did you use uh, a higher fat diet when you were working with Mark Allen? Oh, I did. Um, and I don't like to call it a high fat or a higher fat diet. I, I don't even like calling it a diet. Okay. Um, I've been asked about, you know, how long have I been following paleo or how long have I been on a high fat diet or you know, how long have I been recommending high-protein diets? I've never recommended diets to begin with. Mm. What I recommend is that um, people find the, the healthy foods that make them feel the best. And in no way will that include refined carbohydrates. People, um, especially when they're addicted, which is really part of the problem, will say, well, I, I need some refined carbohydrates because I feel better. You know, I just, my body craves them. Well, you crave them because you're addicted. And every time you consume some, it impairs your, your health. And why would anybody want to do that, especially if you're trying to be a better athlete? Mm-hmm. So um, from the beginning, you know, as a student, I learned and, and um I think growing up in the 60s and and um, realizing, you know, what a healthy diet was versus what junk food was, um, I, I realized that for me it was, it was very important to, to stick with healthy food. But as soon as I got into practice, my recommendations were always to um, consume a, a good amount of healthy fats because they were the only source of um, various nutrients that uh, were necessary for, for good health and for fitness. And to consume um, a good amount of healthy protein, and the healthiest ones were from animals. Um, and fruits and vegetables were sort of the foundation of the diet. And um, so that was sort of the philosophy I had from the beginning. Um, whether someone calls that paleo or, or, you know, in the beginning, I remember talking to my old friend George Sheehan, who's no longer with us. Um, but I was, I was talking to, <clears throat> to George about the, the, the stuff. 
style of eating that I was recommending and, the, you know, how I ate. And he said, oh, that's the caveman diet. Mm. So, you know, the paleo diet years ago was was called the caveman diet. And I said, George, I, I don't like calling it a diet. It's a way of, of eating that's healthy. It's the way humans should be eating. And there's no real question about that. It's, um, you know, it's just a matter of re-educating in the case because the, the food companies have um, created so much propaganda over the years that we've been miseducated. So we have to kind of re-educate um, mm. people in that regard. So, uh, you know, I've been, I've been sort of eating that way um, my whole life. I've just gotten stricter um, as the year went on, especially early, early on, because I realized that um, the body is very delicate, and if you put something in it that, that it doesn't like, it's gonna, it's gonna let you know, and you need to be able to listen to that. Mm-hmm. So you talked there about refined carbs and how those can really have a detrimental effect on fat burning. And what a lot of people think that, well, whole grains are an okay carb because they're they're slowly released, maybe or something like that. What is your view on whole grains? Will that impair fat burning? It certainly will um, in in many cases, in most cases. The, the problem is that when people talk about whole grains, the majority of people think that the the um, foods that they're getting are whole grains and they're not. So if you go into a deli and buy a, a bran muffin, um, that's just white flour with caramel color, color added and, and it, there's nothing whole grain about it. If you go in the store... Um, and buy a loaf of bread that says whole wheat bread. Um, in 99% of the cases, that's just um, refined flour that's uh, high glycemic. And the glycemic index is really uh, an important um, factor here because that's, um, that's the index that measures the amount of insulin we release when we consume the carbohydrate. And that's the, the problem with carbohydrates is that we, we produce a lot of insulin as a result. So most of the so-called whole grains that are in the marketplace are really not whole grain. They're just called that. Um, if you go to the store, um, and this is not to, uh, something that's easy to do, most people have never seen wheat berries. They wouldn't know what they were if they, if, you know, if you had a bowl of them on the table. Mm-hmm. Um, if, but if you go to the store, if you go to a health food store that has wheat berries, which would be hard to find, um, and you, and you grind that up and make your own bread, um, some people may tolerate that. Many people will not because in addition to it being a starch that's difficult to digest, um, many people have have um, mild to moderate to even severe um, allergies to wheat. It's a very common problem. So um, I think the, the diet should be built around other healthy natural food items rather than whole grains. Mm-hmm. So how about when you're out during running a marathon and you take a swig of Gatorade or something like that? Is that going to impair performance? Would you recommend? Uh, that's, you, that's you can, a, go ahead. That's a good question. And it's really the it's really the question that people um, ask when I say I don't eat any refined carbohydrates. Um, they say, what about during training, during long training or right after training or during a race or immediately after a race? Um, and and in most cases, what they're saying is, I need to eat carbohydrates because I'm addicted. And <laughs> when can I do it? Uh-huh. Um, and and I just don't want to play that game. There is a time uh, in a in a race when um, consuming a source of carbohydrate can maintain fat burning. And and the way to do that is not the way most people do it. The first thing that has to be done is you have to you have to be able to increase your 
your fat burning capabilities so that you can go out and train um, for more than an hour or more than two hours or more than three hours without needing any extra source of carbohydrate. Um, and many people can't do that. Many people can do an hour, but um, to do two hours or more, um, many people don't have the energy for that. And the reason they don't have the energy is because their fat burning capability is, is not what it should be. It's, it's diminished and that needs to be worked on. Um, the diet will help that and the training will help that. And once you can get your your natural fat stores to give you a lot of energy in a um, long training run and in, even in a long anaerobic training run, then you can top that off in a race with um, small amounts of, uh, of um, carbohydrate during the event to maintain fat burning. And the carbohydrates I recommend in that case, uh, which I, I discuss in the book, is a 6% carbohydrate solution preferably using uh, monosaccharides because they don't need to be digested. Mm. Monosaccharides would be uh, something like fruit juice, and I don't recommend citrus, but apple juice or grape juice is uh, is good for that. And, or honey, which is a, a, um, a monosaccharide a sugar that doesn't require digestion. And um, that can be very, very helpful. If you consume uh, Gatorade in a race or Coke or virtually all the um, uh, you know the goos and the, the carbohydrate supplements that are out there in the market and are on race courses today, most of them are not monosaccharides. Most of them are disaccharides. Uh, some are even starches, but most are disaccharides, which have to be digested. Mm. And the, the, the indicator that you're consuming, the and this is something you have to do in training, um, once you're once you're able to, to generate more energy from fat, you need to experiment on some kind of drink that you're going to use in your race to see how it works. And the indication that it's not going to work is that it gives you bloating and indigestion or, or diarrhea. Um, that means your body doesn't want to handle that stuff. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And you talk about that the amount of carbs that a person can tolerate is different from person to person. Someone might be able to have 150 or 200 grams of carbs a day and be perfectly fine. But then there's, you know, sometimes I go to marathons and I'll see maybe a quarter of the people are overweight. And that does that indicate that they might be carbohydrate intolerant? Um, it does indicate that. And um, and that's a good observation on your part. I don't know where the, the, the percentage is. Is it 25%? I went to um, my first race uh, last um, last summer, uh, here in, in New York, where I am right now in Syracuse at a half Ironman race. Um, and it was the first, uh, uh, race I went to, um, since I think, uh, Mark Allen's last race, mm. and I, which was quite a long time ago. And I was shocked at the number of overweight people. I refer to it as over fat. Mm. Um, that way we don't have to deal with weight and what's the cutoff and is, is it overweight and what is obesity and, you know. It's basically when the person has too much body fat because they're not able to burn that fat. Mm-hmm. And I was just shocked at the, the high, high percentage of competitors. And we're not talking about spectators, but competitors in the half Ironman event who were significantly over fat, many of them. So um, it's a it's a problem. We have an over fat society and, and 75% of our society worldwide is over fat. And the problem has crept into sports and has been doing so for many, many years. And these are people who are carbohydrate intolerant and 
who believe that since they work out a lot and burn a lot of calories, they can eat carbohydrates because they'll burn it away. Well, that's a that's a real misnomer. That's not how it works. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I'd like to turn our attention a little bit uh, to the training aspect. And you talk about two forms of, tra- of systems in the body, the aerobic and the anaerobic. And from what I got from reading your book is, is your, the idea is to build sort of like an endurance space of aerobic training and then maybe six to eight weeks of more anaerobic training. Is that correct? And can, could you go into a little more detail about how that works? Yeah, that's, you know, the, the, the most important part for an endurance athlete is to build the aerobic system. Um, and the, the aerobic system is what provides us with the energy for our race, 98, 99% or more of the energy we need in an endurance event comes from the aerobic system. So why would you not want to spend most of your time developing that system? And indeed, that's that's the best way to do it. Um, and um, then if you accomplish that after so many weeks and months, a period that... Um, uh, my friend um, Arthur Lydia called the base uh, base building. Um, that that's a period where you should be able to develop the aerobic system, increase your ability to burn fats. Um, you're literally converting fat to energy, and the more you can do that, then the faster you can run at the same heart rate. Um, and once you've done that, then the question is: um, Is there time and energy to do anaerobic activity? Because you're going to get so little out of it, and the risk of anaerobic training is relatively high when when an athlete gets injured it's usually the anaerobic muscle fibers that get injured mm-hmm. and those injuries those muscle injuries then cause joint injuries or ligament injuries tendon injuries or other muscle injuries but it's usually the anaerobic fibers so they are the, the vulnerable ones from a standpoint of, of getting injured so do you want to risk an injury um for a little bit of gain in in speed, um, and and um, also risk creating more stress because anaerobic training is a stress. It's not unlike work stress or personal relationship stress or um, the stress of wearing uh, improper shoes or any other stress. And so, do you have time in your life? schedule for more stress? And and the answer for most people is no. Mm-hmm. There's no time for stress. Um, I don't have the energy to do um, anaerobic work. And um, and the return, you know, the, the risk-reward relationship just, just doesn't make sense for many people. And I've had plenty of people, including Mark, um, Mark Allen, but Mike Pig, uh, when I worked with him, um, he uh, he had his greatest year, and I don't remember which year it was, but um, his greatest year where he won more races and ranked high in most of them and um, never got hurt uh, is when he didn't do any anaerobic training and, and just, um, you know, did his whole his whole season aerobically. And um, Angela Ness, who I'm working with now, um, is also doing the same thing. Last year, she, she won... Um, Many races um, did well in the ones she didn't win and um, was Canadian Triathlete of the Year uh, last year and and, uh, didn't do any anaerobic stuff. Mm -hmm. You know, I'd like to ask you about an observation that that I was thinking about as I was reading your book, and that is when I was in track in high school, it seemed that the sprinters were always doing the anaerobic work. And they seemed, it didn't seem like they ever burnt out, but the endurance runners, the distance runners, were always the ones that were getting injured and sometimes burning out. Huh. <laughs> um, I'm just wondering 
How does that uh, jive with that idea that too much anaerobic is could be bad? Well, it, it may make sense simply because the endurance um, runners may have been running with a higher heart rate and they may have actually been doing anaerobic training as well. But in addition to the anaerobic component of the training, they were doing a lot more volume than the, the sprinters. Sprinters, you know, um, I was a sprinter and I was, as a sprinter, um, one of the laziest athletes around because hmm. when you're a sprinter, you go out and you, you jog a couple of laps and, and then you do some sprints. And um, I also did the triple jumps. You do a few jumps, and uh, you do a little jog uh, to to cool down, and that you know that's your that's your workout. Um, mm-hmm. The endurance athletes tended to go out and and run a few miles, and if they were anaerobic, now they're they have a component of um, high volume to their training and and anaerobic as well, and that that's a, a recipe for disaster. And actually, that is the the combination most deadly for endurance athletes: the fact that they're they're putting in a lot of miles, in many cases more miles than they really need, and the fact that they're training at a heart rate that's way above their their um, aerobic maximum. So um, that that combination you see uh, in 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 all levels of uh, running uh, even today, and part of it was because the. You know, in the 60s and 70s, um, the running boom um, was exploding, and the, the the environment was ripe for more coaches to come in, and those coaches came from track and field, and, and with it, they brought their track and field work ethic, which was intervals and faster and all that kind of stuff, and so the track and field coaches began to train endurance athletes, and it, it's just uh, not, a, not a good mesh. Okay. So- Something you mentioned there is that some endurance athletes might be doing more miles than they need. How do you know what the proper amount of base mileage is? I know we had a, a guy uh, who does CrossFit endurance. His name is Brian McKenzie on a few weeks ago, and he was saying he has a program that he ba- he ran a 100 miler or several of them actually with only doing 13 mile uh, uh, trail runs in preparation. Is that crazy, or are some people actually doing more than they need? Well, I think I think um, um, based on the the athletes I saw and and have seen since since um, the seventies, um, most athletes put in more training miles, and I, I do everything by time. Mm. But most athletes train more uh, than they need to. Um, Thirteen miles as your longest distance for a hundred miler. That that's reasonable if you're if you're healthy and if you've built your aerobic system up. Um, uh, you know, you could you can almost um, look at the body and say that the the human body can do two to three times uh, more in a race than it can do in training. Um, that doesn't fit with 13 milers and and doing 100 milers. Although um, when you start basing it on time and not mileage, you're you're a lot closer. But um, I, I you know I would say that um, there there are two um, two causes. Uh, two important training causes of, of overtraining, and one is too many miles, and, and the other is, is too much um, too much speed, which is often done within those miles that's supposed to be aerobic miles. So um, um, I think I, I think the, the 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 phrase I've used um, often is when in doubt do less because you're you're never going to undertrain, and it's so easy to overtrain. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, if you still have time, I'd like to talk a little bit about, um, your turn to music. Sure. 
Um, so you've, you, you, you have a very interesting story. You know, you, you've gone through chiropractic school, then in, uh, coaching endurance athletes, and uh, recently you've turned to music. How did that change come about? And, and, and also, you've been a physician for the Red Hot Chili Peppers, right? Yeah, I, um, when I was in practice, I had a, a variety of, of different types of patients. I, I did work with athletes quite a bit. But I, um, I also was involved in, uh, in corporate fitness early on before corporate fitness uh, was even called that. Um, uh, I, I worked with um, uh, some, some patients who were musicians. James Taylor was a, a patient of mine when I had my, my New York office. So um, I had a, a, a wide spectrum of, of patients um, who did different things, and I treated them similarly. Um, basically, uh, a musician is a is an athlete. Mm. Um, they have a rigorous schedule when they're on tour. Um, they're um, they're performing and they're spending a couple of hours on stage, and it's not unlike a a race. Uh, likewise for an executive, um, an executive is, uh, you know, the best executives are the healthiest ones because their brain works better, their body works better, and they have endurance and their their energy doesn't fade out after lunch or, or whenever. So, um, but, you know, my, my, my change um, uh, into music was another one of those epiphanies. It was one, another one of those moments. I woke up one day, uh, and I've had music in my head my entire life. I, I, I realized it in the, I, I don't, I, I must have been three or four years old when I first realized it. And, and later on in high school, I, I realized also that it was original music, but um, it was about 10 years ago that I uh, woke up one day and, and just decided to be a songwriter. Uh, I wanted to take this music in my head and, and turn it into real songs. And um, it was uh, it was one of those epiphanies, and and I dropped everything and devoted uh, all my energy to learning how to play guitar, which I didn't really do. Learning learning to um, play piano and learning how to write music, and it was uh, quite a, a change. And and when I did that, I realized that I I, I better um, um, use my my other talent. Uh, to work with musicians because that was a, a way for me to rub elbows with some some of the good uh, singer songwriters out there and um, and that worked out really well. Mm-hmm. So were you able to get the Red Hot Chili Peppers off refined carbohydrates? Well, you know, they interestingly enough they um, <clears throat> they had read one of my books. Um, before I met them. So um, they kind of knew what I was all about, and their interest was to get healthier and get more fit um, over and above where they had gotten by reading the book. And um, and then it was it was clear that the 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 touring for them was a rigorous you know, it's a tough, um, it's a tough grind. Mm. And, uh, when you're doing three or four shows a week, you know, for weeks and sometimes months at a time, um, it's tough and your, your health has to be, um, at the top of its game if you're going to perform the best. So they asked me to come on tour with them. I think I, I did maybe four tours with them as their doctor and, um, and worked with a number of other musicians as well. And, and, uh, basically treated them like athletes it was it was the same the same situation we need to increase fat burning we need to you know um, eat, eat the healthiest foods uh, exercise 
test aerobically and, and so on. So um, it, it was it was very very interesting, and it was certainly something that uh, helped m- me understand music better to see some of the the people, especially um, John Frusciante, the the guitarist, and Flea, the the bass guitarist. They're they're musical geniuses, and um, being around them and talking about music was uh, just a, an incredible experience. Well, that's really cool that you uh, took that leap of faith and and decided to do something you were passionate about, which was music. And it's pretty incredible that you did that without any previous experience. How's it been going so far? It's been great. Um, I've got five albums. Um, uh, I'm working with uh, Rick Rubin, who is my producer and uh, sort of music mentor. Uh, Rick um, actually was another one who had read one of my books before I knew him. And um, about four days after I decided to be a a musician, um, I got a call uh, through one of my editors or one of my publishers that Rick had called trying to get a hold of me, wanting to consult with me. Hmm. and so it was an incredible thing uh, to, to hear that. And I called him back and I said, um, I don't consult anymore because I just became a songwriter. And we laughed about that. And, and in the end of that conversation, decided that I would help him in his endeavors to, to be more healthy and fit. And he would help me in my in my songwriting. And we've been... We've been working together ever since. I I uh, play a lot of my new songs for him. Um, when I when I uh, I spend a lot of time in the uh, Southern California area, so I record most of my music out there and um, and see him often. I'm in touch with him all the time. So it's been it's been a wonderful ride to say the least. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and Rick Rubin actually, there was an excerpt that he had written in your book about how he had followed your advice to drop his vegan diet or vegetarian diet and. And start including some meat and healthier fats and things like that, and he lost something like 130 pounds. Is that correct? Right, right. And, has, um, has he been able to keep that up? Oh, he has. Um, he, you know, he's become a, um, uh, you know, a healthy and fit individual, and it's night and day from the way he was. Um, and whenever we get together, we sort of have this tradition now where we we go and have a you know a organic grass-fed steak because it was something he he would never eat before and mm. um so it's been it's been uh it's been fun and inspiring and um you know the music has uh um, we're on our fourth music tour now music and wellness tour where i lecture on health topics uh often to groups of athletes and then play music and um you know what i realized um after i i became a musician i i spent several years in LA working with Rick um, and then realized that music, you know, that I, I realized I hadn't changed careers. I didn't go from being a sports medicine doc or, or, or coach to, to being a, a songwriter. But I, instead I incorporated songwriting into what I was already doing. So the, the goal of the music and wellness tour is to encourage athletes to put music in their life because it, it has such a profound effect on health and fitness uh, through the brain that um, it's it's often something that's as valuable as good nutrition and proper training. So, um, um, but in, in, in addition to that, it's really the, you know, this is the most fun I've ever had in my life. Well, Phil, it's been great talking to you today. Where would you recommend people go to find out more about your work? Well, the website, um, I, I try to keep active um, with new articles. Uh, when I'm on tour, it's, it's, I, I can't often put a new article up there weekly, but 
Um, generally, in the course of the year, I, I have a new article every week that gets posted on the website, and they can go to filmafriton.com, and there's probably 200 articles on the website um, right now, many of which were written after the the latest book, so it's information that um, isn't posted anywhere. And a lot of my music is on the website as well, so uh, people can listen to that. Okay, great. Well, thanks so much for taking the time to talk with me today. I know our, our listeners will really enjoy it, and it's been a very interesting conversation. Thank you, Aaron. It's been great. We all need to sit back and take the lead And we all know You've been listening to another episode of Paleo Runner Podcast. For more information, go to paleorunner.org. Thanks for listening.